Take your Bibles, join me once again in this amazing book called Genesis. And we're going to return to chapter 12, and we're going to look today at a text that is, I dare say, indispensable as far as your understanding of the Bible. If I were invited to speak to a group of Christians rather new to the faith, all they know is that Jesus died for their sins, that he rose from the dead, and they didn't really understand a whole lot more than that about the Bible. And I just had two or three opportunities to teach on the Word of God and expand their understanding. I would choose this text right here. Because the content that we're going to look at today introduces a concept that's very, very important to the entirety of Scripture. And it's called the Abrahamic Covenant. The Abrahamic Covenant. Covenant, that concept of a covenant is all throughout your Bible. What is a covenant? It's been explained rather simply. It's been described as an agreement between two parties. And that's not wrong, but it's incomplete. Because that description would apply to any number of human contracts. Uh, in 1993, I remember a horrendous flood occurred in my hometown of Sioux Falls, South Dakota. It was a flash flood. I remember where I was. I was in a movie theater. I was watching a movie with my brother, and we could hear the rain during the movie. It was not a quiet film, and we could hear the pelting raindrops. And when we got out of that movie, we came into the lobby. I looked out the window of that theater. I could not even see my car. So heavy was that rain. And yet, because we were young and confident, stupid, we decided to make a run for the car. And so we bolted out that door, we got to our car, we found it, and we opened the doors, we got in, shut those doors, we were soaking wet, and my brother said, are you sure you can make it home in this? I said, ah, we don't live that far. I go, I can, I can make it home blindfolded. And so I turned the wipers on to no avail, they, they did nothing, and I started the car and I navigated that parking lot and I pulled out and I made that turn and I pulled up to that stop sign and I was about to head out and I, as I turned into the intersection, my car stopped. It just died. You know? And I said, what's going on? I understand what's going on. And my brother said, let me check something. And he opened his door and water flooded into the floorboards of my car. I said, no! Abandoned ship! And so we left <laughs> the car. And we found ourselves, you know, about this high in water and we began to wade toward this grocery store that was just off of the street there. It was kind of elevated. And so we went in there and we waited for like two hours, shivering for my parents to come and pick us up after the rain subsided. And when they did, I discovered exactly how bad it was for the entire county, this horrendous downpour. And my dad, who pastored a small church in Sioux Falls, he said, son, you're never going to believe it. A deacon called me about 45 minutes ago. The entire church basement has been flooded. I said, wow. And, and we, we had like a whole suite of classrooms. We had a, a fellowship hall. We had a full kitchen. We had a, a piano down there. All of our teaching materials all ruined. We stopped at the church after the rain was done. We came in the front door. The smell hit us in the face. And I looked over the edge of the uh, stairwell, and I could see the gray water uh, creeping up those carpeted steps. The next morning, my father called the insurance company, and he was told by that agent that, I'm sorry, Pastor Grimm, your policy does not cover flood. And my dad said, oh, you've got to be kidding me. What, what, what are you supposed to do? And he said, I, I, don't, I don't know. I'm sorry. It's just not in your policy. He said, well, you've got to help us out. We can't even meet upstairs in the church because of the smell. And this agent said, well, what, what smell? And my dad said, well, the smell of sewage. You see, what had happened in our neighborhood was that so heavy was this flood, the sewers were overwhelmed, and they all backed up into our basement. And so this agent said, well, now, wait a minute, that, that changes everything. He said, about three months ago, one of your elders called and added a sewage writer to your policy. See, elders can get a few things right. <laughs> Any good elder will tell you that part of being an elder is anticipating a lot of crap. And so he said, you're covered. And so they replaced everything at the church. Didn't help my car. But why did they do, did they do that out of the goodness of their heart? No. They did it because there was a legal binding 
in our policy. They were contractually obligated. And that is what a contract is. There's a legal binding with a contract. A covenant is beyond that. A covenant is not merely legal binding. There's a moral binding to this. And the concept of covenant is what God does. Everything he does, he operates by covenant. There are human covenants, but they're all based on divine covenants, God's relationship to man and the covenants that he makes with man. Man never makes a covenant with God. It always starts with God. Man only chooses whether or not to enter in to a covenant, which is predicated on the character of God and what he is asking of man. And so we're going to look at this particular covenant that originates with God that he makes with a man named Abram. Abram. Now let's look at this covenant and let's look first at the context God has decided not to govern mankind in general anymore. He used to do that, and now he will no longer try to govern man. Man has proven that he is ungovernable. And if you recall in the Tower of Babel episode, God had told man, he said, I want you to scatter, fill the earth. Man said, no, not going to do it, going to stay right here, going to build a tower to heaven. God said, no, you won't. And he confused man. Gave him multiple languages so that he could not understand himself and, and each other. And so they divided, mankind divided into different people groups linguistically. And these different societies spread out and they took with them their pagan practices, their idolatry. And so now God is not going to govern man collectively. He's not going to govern multiple nations of man. He says, now I am going to govern one nation of man, one nation, and I'm going to create that nation from scratch. I'm going to take one guy and from him grow a people. And he chooses, of all the peoples that settled in Ur of the Chaldeans, he chooses one man, a guy named Abram. Abram is 75 years old. He has a barren wife named Sarai. They are past the prime for childbearing. And this is who God has chosen to create a new nation, which tells you it's going to have to be a miracle to begin this nation. And uh, Abram is not chosen for no reason. He is descended from Shem. Shem, and the descendants of Shem are called the Semites. Shem was a special person. He's the son of Noah. Noah said of Shem in Genesis 9, he said, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Shem, not the God of Japheth, not the God of Ham. So we know that there is a righteousness in Shem. Uh, his father is Noah. Noah is someone who found favor in the eyes of God. We read that. Noah is descended. You could trace him back to Enoch. Enoch walked with God, and God took him for his own. Enoch uh, was descended from Seth, whose name means the anointed one, and uh, who, who called upon the name of the Lord. Seth was the son of Adam and Eve, and so God made a promise concerning Adam and Eve back in Genesis 3. He said that the seed of the woman, there would come from the woman an offspring one day who would crush the head of the serpent. And so there is a righteous line from Adam and Eve through Seth, through Enoch, through Noah, through Shem, all the way to this man, Abram. He is a Semite. He's not just any Semite, however. He's an old, childless Semite. His name, Abram, Abram, in Hebrew, it means exalted father. Can you imagine how embarrassing that would be to be a geriatric, childless guy and uh, you, you introduce yourself, you meet somebody, they say, what's your name? You say, uh, Exalted Father. And they say, oh, where's your kids? Oh, well, you know, it's a long story, right? Later, God changes his name to Abraham. Abraham, it means father of a multitude. So you meet somebody and they go, hey, don't I know you? You're, a, you're Exalted Father. Well, no, no, I've, I've changed my name. Oh, yeah, I bet you did. What's your new name? Father of a multitude, you know. <laughs> Embarrassing. And yet it's this guy that God makes a covenant with. Now, what is the nature of the Abrahamic covenant? Well, there's two types, two types of covenants. You need to understand this. There's a conditional covenant, and there's an unconditional covenant. A conditional covenant is when God says, do this, and I will do this. If you do what I'm asking you to do, I will bless you. If you don't do what I'm asking, I will discipline you in some way. There will be repercussions. That's a conditional covenant. An unconditional covenant has no such requirement. It's merely God saying, I will do this thing, and he does it. It's not contingent upon your obedience, your actions, your behavior, any of that. Now, that's not to say that there are not going to be expectations on man in an unconditional covenant. 
God will still ask things of man. It's just that what God will do is not dependent on what man does. And so the difference, the way to think of these is in a conditional covenant, God says, if you do this, I will bless you. In an unconditional covenant, he says, I've blessed you. Now do this. And that is how you think about that. So what kind of covenant is this covenant that God makes with Abraham? In your notes, the type of covenant we're talking about is an unconditional covenant. As we will see, it will not depend on Abraham's actions. All God is requiring him to do is believe. Faith. Faith is never described as a work of any kind in Scripture. It produces works, but it itself is not a work. So this is an unconditional covenant. Now, how long will this covenant last? What is the duration of this covenant? In your notes, it's an everlasting covenant. There is no end point for this thing. Uh, There is no limited time frame. It doesn't terminate. And who is the beneficiary? Who are the recipients of this covenant? Obviously, Abram. But as we're going to see, it's also going to include Abram's descendants. What do we call those who descend from Abram, from Abraham? We call those people something. What do we call them? Jews. Jews. What is the nation that identifies with the Jewish people in the Bible? It's the nation of Israel. And so in your notes, the recipients are Israel. All right? Uh, Genesis 12 is where we're going to go today, and we're going to look at this. I'm going to read the entire text. We're just going to walk through this quickly, and then we're going to go back to the top, and we're going to start to break this down. So look with me at verse 1. Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and from your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you, and I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. So Abram went, as the Lord had told him, and Lot went with him. Abram was 75 years old when he departed from Haran. And Abram took Sarai, his wife, and Lot, his brother's son, and all their possessions that they'd gathered and the people that they had acquired in Haran, and they set out to go to the land of Canaan. Uh, This guy Lot, we're going to learn about him later on. He is Abram's nephew. Uh, He is allowed to enter the promised land with Abram, which indicates that he has evidenced belief in this promise as well. God is not going to allow unbelievers to enter the land, only those who have faith. Uh, You'll recall Abram's father, Terah, was a pagan, and God wouldn't let Terah come in. So Abram had to wait until Terah died before uh, he would go. And it says, when they came to the land of Canaan, Abram passed through the land of the place at Shechem, the oak of Morah. And what this is is probably a landmark of some sort. Uh, Later on in Deuteronomy, you're going to read about the Israelites after wandering in the, in the desert, in the wilderness for 30 years, or 40 years rather, they're going to be allowed to enter this land. And when they do, they're going to see there are pagan peoples occupying the land. And they are instructed by God at that time to tear down the altars, to smash the idols and the bales that are present in the land of Canaan. And so we see uh, that kind of idolatry here, and this is probably evidence of that. Mora in Hebrew means teacher, so this is probably some kind of a landmark named for a false teacher. It says, At that time the Canaanites were in the land, and then the Lord appeared to Abram and said, To your offspring I will give this land, not just to you, but to those who descend from you. And he said, it says, So he built there an altar to the Lord who had appeared to him, and from there he moved to the hill country on the east of Bethel, And pitched his tent with Bethel on the west and Ai on the east. And there he built an altar to the Lord and called upon the name of the Lord. So here's Abram. He's building altars in a land of paganism where they worship many gods. Abram is building altars to the true God, the one true God. He's a righteous man set apart, living in a pagan land, surrounded by pagan people next to pagan monuments, How pagan, how dark is this land? These Canaanites, uh, just to give you an idea, they would take infants, live infants, they would put them in jars, they would bury those jars in the earth so their gods would give them good crops. That's the kind of people that we're talking about. So Abram is called to be set apart from all that, to, to evidence righteousness in a pagan land. Let me ask you, are we called as Christians to live righteously in a pagan land? We are to be set apart. Abram models that for us. And as he does so, he is not going to be a perfect man. He's going to be human. God is going to promise some things in this covenant. 
These promises will be fulfilled. They will not be dependent upon Abram. Abram's going to make some mistakes. He's going to do some dumb stuff. We're going to see that next week as we look at our text. He's going to try to help God out. He's going to act stupid. It's going to be like running to the car in the middle of a flash flood. He's going to do dumb things, but God is not going to abandon him. Aren't you glad that when you do dumb stuff, God doesn't abandon you? Amen. And so our God keeps his word. He's not going to bail. Now, that's the nature of this covenant. Let's look at the components of this covenant. Let's go back to the top. The first promise that we're going to see is touched on in the instructions that God gives Abram as he's about to leave Haran. And in your notes, it's the promise of land. Land. Okay? Just so you uh, recall here, he says, Go from your country, from your kindred, from your father's house to the land that I will show you. Abram doesn't know the name of this land. He doesn't know how to get there. He doesn't know where it is. God is just going to tell him, get moving, and I'll show you. And so as Abram evidences faith, gradually God reveals more of the promise. The promise isn't fulfilled because of his faith, but it is revealed because of his faith. We read in verse 6, it says, At that time the Canaanites were in the land. That means it was already occupied. Okay, there were people that were there. In spite of that, God says in verse 7, to your offsprings, I will give this land. There's already people living here. That doesn't matter. They don't have a right to this land. I am giving this land to you. And that's where he builds an altar. And so suffice to say, this promise of land involves real, physical, literal land. Promise to Abram and his descendants. Is that land in dispute today? Are there people that covet that land? Are people fighting over that land today? Yeah, that's been going on from day one. And yet God promises this land. Now some people, even in Christian circles, try to say, well, it's not really, it's not really physical land that God is promising Abram. You know, this is, this is symbolic. God is promising him not the land of Israel. He's promising him a spiritual land. This is the promise of heaven. It's symbolic, don't you know? Let me put that to rest. This is not symbolic. God is not speaking symbolically of heaven. If God were promising Abram heaven, why is he sending him on a journey? He's not going to find that on earth. This is a promise of real physical land. You know, at the end of World War II, after all that the Jews endured in the Holocaust, the League of Nations issued something called the Mandate for Palestine. And by Palestine, they were referring to the land of Israel. And that's what it was called at the time. The entire land was called Palestine because uh, there were no Jews living on it, or very few. And there had not been for some time. They were chased out starting in AD 70 when Rome destroyed Jerusalem. And uh, they were basically eradicated from that land. They They swept across Europe. Many of them were exterminated by Hitler during World War II. But a lot of them were were coming back to the land after World War II, and so they had to make some determinations. And so the League of Nations made a mandate for Palestine, and Great Britain was to oversee and administer this region. And there were clashes between Arabs and Jews over who had a right to the land. And so a commission was set up by Great Britain, and they called before them people to testify. And one of the people that came before this commission was a guy named David Ben-Gurion. David Ben-Gurion was the man who would later become the first prime minister of Israel. He's probably the most important figure in the history of modern Israel. And so he came before this commission to testify and to justify why the Jews had a claim to this land. They said, explain under this mandate from the League of Nations why you have a claim to this land. He said, your mandate is not our Bible. The Bible is our mandate. And what he was saying is, it doesn't matter whether the League of Nations thinks we have a right to this land or whether Great Britain thinks we have a right to this land. God has given us a right to this land. And let me tell you something. He was absolutely right. Absolutely right. I don't know if David Ben-Gurion ever came to faith in Christ. We know he was a Jew. I could tell you that today if you visit Israel, you could visit his home. And after he died, they sealed off his office exactly as he left it. And on his desk are a stack of books, and on top of those books is a Bible. His personal Bible, and it includes the New Testament. And on a chair next to his desk is another stack of books. 
And among those books is a book called The Late Great Planet Earth by the Christian author Hal Lindsey. And in it is his teachings on Bible prophecy, and a lot of it pertains to the land of Israel. So I don't know if we're going to see David Ben-Gurion in heaven or not, but I do know that he understood that uh, his nation exists solely because of a promise that God made to a man named Abram in 2000 B.C. And today that land continues to be in dispute. It is one of the most coveted pieces of property in all the world. Arabs and Jews fight over it, particularly Jerusalem, particularly uh, the Temple Mount. Uh, You saw... Uh, the animosity toward the Jews in October when Hamas made incursions into the land. They killed well over a thousand Jews. They kidnapped many of them, taking them back into Gaza. Some of those were American Jews that were just there visiting. We're still trying to get them back. But the rallying cry of Hamas and of the Palestinian movement, and this is a rallying cry that's been adopted even by Westerners who are ignorant as to its meaning. That cry is from the river to the sea. Palestine will be free. Do you understand what they mean by that? Do you know what river they are referring to? They're talking about the Jordan River. Do you know what sea they are referring to? They're talking about the Mediterranean. What lies between the Jordan and the Mediterranean? It's the whole land of Israel. And so this cry is calling for the genocide of the Jewish people. They want it all, but they can't have it all. Check this out. I want to show you a map of current day Israel. That is the Middle East right there. And that little sliver outlined in red is modern-day Israel. Look how tiny. Look at all the nations that surround it. Those are all Arab nations, every one of them. And they are vast in comparison to little bitty Israel, okay? But now I want to show you something because in Genesis 15, 18, it says, On that day the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying to your descendants, I've given this land from the river of Egypt as far as the great river, the great river Euphrates. That's a whole lot more land than Israel currently occupies. Let me show you biblically what God has promised. You see that greater border right there? That is the totality of what God has promised the descendants of of Abraham. Can you believe that? If they had currently all that God promised them, it would include all of Israel, including Gaza, Lebanon, the the West Bank of Jordan, significant portions of of Egypt, of Syria, Iraq, Saudi Arabia. Now, they they don't occupy all of that right now. They will one day. When? When Christ returns. That's when they will enter in the land. You know why? Because God keeps his promises. All right, you can take that slide down. So that's the land promise. Incidentally, you think if those that hate Israel knew everything that God had promised her, maybe they'd just leave her alone and let her keep what she's got and cut their losses. I don't know. But in verse 2, we go on, and God says to Abram, and I will make of you a great nation. And so we've got the first promise is the promise of land. Now we've got a second promise in this covenant. And we call this in your notes the promise of seed. Seed. I'm going to make a nation out of you. That's going to require descendants. It's going to necessitate that Abram's seed will replicate. And that's a remarkable promise to a 70-year-old guy with a barren wife. But God's going to make it happen. He's going to bring it about. And there's going to be a lot of twists and turns along the way, as we shall see in our study. But it will occur. Uh, Genesis 17, 6, I will make you exceedingly fruitful, and I will make you into nations and kings shall come from you. Uh, When Israel re-entered the land in 1948 and they became a sovereign nation there, there were 650,000 Jews in Israel. That's it. That's it. 650,000. How many American cities are bigger than that? Today, there are nearly 16 million Jews on planet Earth. And that's still very small comparing that to some other nations, but it is incredible considering God started with one man and a barren wife And also considering how many Jews have been killed throughout history. I mean, Hitler gassed 6 million Jews during World War II. That's a conservative estimate. But then look at verse 2. God says, and I will bless you. I will bless you. So we've got a promise of land. We've got a promise of seed. And now we've got the third promise of the Abrahamic covenant. It's the promise of blessing. Blessing. This is a blessed people. 
historically. I heard a joke about a, a Jewish man who rode the subway every day. And as he did so, he noticed another Jewish man on the subway. And he noticed that this other Jewish guy sat there every day reading an Arab newspaper. And he thought, well, that's crazy. Why is he reading an Arab newspaper? And finally, he got up the courage to just ask him. He went over, sat down, and said, excuse me. He said, what are you doing? Why are you reading an Arab newspaper? And this other Jewish guy said, I used to read the Jewish paper. But what did I get? All bad news. It's all bad news. Jews being persecuted. Jews being attacked. Jews disappearing through assimilation and intermarriage. Jews living in poverty. Bad news. So I switched to the Arab paper. Now what do I find? Jews own all the banks. Jews control the media. Jews are all rich and powerful. Jews rule the world. I like this news. But the fact is, the Jews have always been prophesied to be a blessed people, and it started with this covenant. Now, it's a broad promise, and it's going to manifest in different ways. In your notes, first of all, it's a personal promise of blessing. It's personal blessing for Abram. Later, Abraham, he would be a highly blessed man financially. He would have wealth, provision. At the end of his life, he's going to need a bride for his son Isaac. He will send his servant to find a bride, and when he does, he offers her something. He says, my master Abraham has camels and donkeys and wealth and riches and honor and land. And he could offer this because God had blessed Abraham. It's a personal blessing. It's also a blessing in your notes of reputation. Uh, he says, and I will make your name great so that you will be a blessing. Abraham has a great name around the world. People honor Abraham. He truly has a great name. Christians, Jews, Muslims, they all revere Abraham. They all consider him to be a father. Uh, Isaiah tells the Jews that Abraham is the rock from which you were hewn. No Abraham, no Jews. Paul tells Christians in Romans 4, we are to walk in the footsteps of faith of our father, Abraham. No Abraham, no Christians. Uh, Arab Muslims, they trace their lineage uh, way back to Ishmael, who would be the product of Abraham's ill-advised union with his wife's handmaid, Hagar. We're going to read about that eventually. So no Abraham, no Arabs. And so we all hold Abraham in high regard. And then there's a blessing in your notes of protection. Protection. Verse 3, God says, I will bless those who bless you. And him who dishonors you, I will curse. This is a promise of protection. God has always protected Israel. He always looks after them. Uh, even though they go through difficult things, even though he himself will judge them, they survive. They, he brings them through it. So this promise is an incentive to ally with Israel, to support them. It's also a deterrent to threatening Israel. You don't want to threaten Israel. Has God really cursed those who come against Israel, is that really true, Pastor Scott? Yes, indeed. How do you know that? Well, let me ask you. Have you ever met a Hittite? Have you ever met an Ammonite? Have you been to an Amalekite barbecue in the neighborhood? No. You know any Moabites? You do not. You know why? They're all dead. God took them out. They threatened his people, and he smoked them. Just as he did the ancient Egyptian empire, just as he did the Assyrian empire, just as he did the Babylonians and the Medo-Persians and the ancient Greeks and the Roman empire and the Third Reich. Hitler killed six million of them. Jews still survive today. Hitler's dead. The Reich is dead. What do you get when you attempt a Jewish genocide? You get a feast in Jerusalem. When the Egyptian pharaoh sought to enslave or eradicate the Jews, how'd that all end up? It ended up with plagues, and then we have the Passover feast, the feast of Passover. What happened when, in the book of Esther, Haman tried to kill off the Jews? He ended up going to his own gallows. He was hung on his own gallows, and we got the feast of Purim for the Jews. When Antiochus Epiphanes, that anti-Semitic Seleucid ruler, came into Jerusalem, he desecrated the temple. He went in there. He slaughtered a pig on the altar. He made the priest drink a broth made from the pig. He, he flung the entrails of that pig all over the inside of that temple. Jesus called that the abomination of desolation. And what happened? The, the Jewish Maccabees, they came in. They chased Antiochus out. 
And they commemorate the cleansing of the temple with a feast of lights called Hanukkah. And one day, there will come another guy into Jerusalem. He's the one that Antiochus foreshadowed, and we're going to call him the Antichrist. And he's going to desecrate the temple. And he's going to set himself up as an object to be worshipped. And what's going to happen? The Lord Jesus Christ is going to return, and he's going to smoke Antichrist. He's going to utterly defeat him. And we're going to have another feast. It's going to be called the Marriage Supper of the Lamb. Amen. That is a blessing of protection. The next facet of blessing is something that you can get in on, even if you're a Gentile. You don't have to be a Jew to be blessed by this next facet. He says, in you, Abram, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. And so this is, in your notes, an outward blessing. It's a blessing that goes out. Uh, We get in on this. Let me ask you, Christian, you Gentile Christian, how are you blessed by a Jew? Well, you know, every time you open your Bible, you're blessed by a Jew. Because 64 out of the 66 books in your Bible were written by Jews. The only two books in your Bible written by Gentiles are Luke and Acts, and they were written by the same Gentile. They were written by a Gentile to a Gentile audience. All the other books in your Bible written by Jews. And by the way, you are a beneficiary of the actions of a singular Jew, aren't you? A Jew by the name of Yeshua, Jesus of Nazareth. A carpenter who went to the cross, prophesied by the Jewish scriptures. We benefit from him. He told the Samaritan woman, uh, he told her that salvation is from the Jews, meaning God's going to bring his Messiah through the line of Abraham. And so we benefit from this. And that is the promise of blessing. So there you have it. The Abrahamic covenant broken down into three components. And now you understand the Abrahamic covenant. Okay? If somebody were to ask you, what is the Abrahamic covenant? You would say that is, that is the covenant God made with Israel. And it involves promises of land, seed, and blessing. Land, seed, blessing. Everybody say land, seed, blessing. You got the Abrahamic covenant. You got it. Congratulations. Now, there are other covenants that pop up in your Bible that are very, very important. But we're going to see something about three of them in particular that actually tie back to this covenant right here and these components. Now, if you take that land promise, does that ever get mentioned again? It does. God reiterates it with Abram in Genesis 13. It says, the Lord said to Abram, after Lot had separated from him, lift up your eyes and look from the place where you are, northward and southward and eastward and westward for all the land that you see, I will give to you and to your offspring forever. How long? Forever. Okay? So he repeats his covenant of land. Genesis 15, 18, I've already read. I'll make a covenant with you. Uh, Abram saying to your descendants, I've given this land. I have given this land. That's past tense. It's done. Uh, From the river of Egypt, as far as the great river, the river Euphrates. They don't occupy all of that territory now. They will one day. Genesis 17, 8. And I will give to you and to your offspring after you the land of your sojournings, all the land of Canaan for an everlasting possession. What kind of possession? An everlasting possession. Never going to end. And I will be their God. All right? So those are the three times he repeats the land promise to Abram. Abraham, all right? You say, well, what, after, what about after Abraham is dead? Does this carry on? Abraham would have a son. Isaac, here's what God would tell Isaac. Genesis 26. He says, Isaac, sojourn in this land, and I will be with you, and I will bless you. For to you and to your offspring, I will give all these lands, and I will establish the oath that I swore to Abraham, your father. And so he, he repeats it to Isaac, Abraham's son. What about after Isaac dies? Well, Isaac's going to have a boy named Jacob. Jacob is going to be a bit of a rascal. And yet, does God repeat this promise to Jacob? He indeed does. Genesis 28, he says to Jacob, I am the Lord, the God of Abraham, your father, and the God of Isaac, the land on which you lie, I will give to you and to your offspring, Jacob. And Jacob's like a lot of us. He's going to do some stupid stuff, even after God says this to him. Is God going to 
back off of this promise. No way. He repeats it to Jacob, Genesis 35, 12. The land I gave to Abraham and Isaac, I will give to you, and I will give the land to your offspring after you. It's a continuous promise that God keeps. You say, well, those are the patriarchs. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, you know, after they're dead, who's to say whether God would keep this promise? Maybe this is just for the patriarchs. We'll look at Deuteronomy 1 with me. This is after the Israelites have uh, gone down. The children of Jacob, they've gone down to Egypt. They've worshipped false idols in Egypt. God has enslaved them there for four centuries. And then he raises up a liberator named Moses. And he delivers them from Egyptian bondage. Is the land promise still for them? In Deuteronomy 1.8 it says, See, I have given you this land, Moses. Go in. Take possession of the land the Lord swore he would give to your fathers, to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and to their descendants after them. Does God go back on his word? He does not. Centuries later, this promise stands. You say, well, but the Israelites are going to be disobedient. Centuries are left between then and now, between Moses and, and, and now. The Israelites, they're going to get into all kinds of trouble. Surely God would give up on them. Well, let me ask you a question. Does God know everything? He does. Does he know that they're going to fail? See, God gives Moses something to guide the people. He gives them another, a different covenant that is a different kind of covenant than the Abrahamic covenant. Look at Deuteronomy 30, verse 1. He's given them the law, and he knows they're going to they're break the law. He says, and when... All these things come upon you, the blessing and the curse, which I have set before you, and you call them to mind among all the nations where the Lord your God has driven you. See, he knows they're going to disobey. He knows he's going to have to judge them. But is he going to break the land promise? In verse 2 he says, You'll return to the Lord your God and your children and obey his voice in all that I command you today and with all your heart and with all your soul. Let me ask you, when... Will all of Israel return to the Lord? It's going to be on that day that they embrace the true Messiah. That's when every living Jew will come back in complete obedience. They will embrace God's Messiah. And then, in verse 3, the Lord God will restore your fortunes and have mercy on you, and he will gather you again from all the peoples where the Lord your God has scattered you. If your outcasts are in the uttermost parts of the heavens, uh, from there the Lord your God will gather you, and from there he will take you, and the Lord your God will bring you into the land that your fathers possessed, that you may possess it. And he will make you more prosperous and numerous <laughs> than your fathers. Isn't that amazing? God's promises are ironclad. There is coming a day when the Lord will return to this earth. And when he does, every Jew on planet earth will look upon him as the one whom they have pierced. And mourn him as one mourns an only son. And they will fall at their feet and they will worship Jesus Christ, the true Messiah. And on that day, the promise God made to Abraham will be utterly, utterly fulfilled. Israel has failed over and over and over. They've dishonored God. But what is described here in Deuteronomy, this is called the Palestinian Covenant. The Palestinian Covenant. I want you to understand, this is not some standalone covenant. This is not a covenant that just originates. And by the way, Palestinian does not refer to the Palestinian people. It refers to this land. But it doesn't make its first appearance in Deuteronomy. I want to show you this diagram right here. You see, the Palestinian covenant from Deuteronomy 30 is simply the land promise from God's covenant with Abraham. That's what it is. And in your notes, the Palestinian covenant is just an extension of God's promise of land to Abraham. So that's that first component of the Abrahamic covenant manifested throughout the Old Testament and throughout your Bible. Now, what about that second promise God made? I want you to look with me at 2 Samuel chapter 7. In 2 Samuel, the king of Israel is now David. David has been placed on the throne. It used to be Saul. Saul was the first king of Israel. He was wicked. God took him. God took his kingdom, gave it to this man, David. 
And David is thinking, you know, Saul used to be on this throne, but he's not now. Saul's sons will never ascend this throne. What about my sons? It's very important to a king, this concept of a dynasty. Okay? He's wondering, will God, will God dispense with me the way that he dispensed with Saul? And so here's what God says to David in 2 Samuel 7, verse 12. He says, when your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you and, you will, and, and, and they shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. I want you to underline the word kingdom. Kingdom. And he shall build a house for my name. Underline that word house. And I will establish the throne. Underline that word throne. The throne of his kingdom forever. God is saying, David, your descendants will never depart the throne. You will have a lineage that will reign. And one day there is coming from you a descendant. Okay? Now does this sound like a conditional promise or an unconditional promise? It's an unconditional promise. He says, verse 14, I will be to him, your descendant, a father, and he shall be to me a son. And when he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men and with the stripes of the son of men. He's saying, no matter what your offspring do, no matter what your descendants do, I'm not going to break this covenant. There's going to come a descendant from you who will sit on your throne, who will rule over your house, and who will have established for him an everlasting kingdom. Throne, house, kingdom. Everybody say throne, house, kingdom. That's right. Those are the components of this covenant that God makes with David. Now I want you to understand who this future descendant is who will sit on that throne, who will rule over that house, and who will have an everlasting kingdom. Turn with me to the New Testament. Luke chapter 2. We're going all over the Bible today. Anybody like the Bible in here? You okay with this if we just move around the Bible a little bit? Folks, this is not just a collection of random stories. These all connect. You understand? So here's what happens. Luke 2, the angel Gabriel appears to Mary. And he's announcing the birth of Christ. He says, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus and he will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him, watch these words, the throne of his father David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom there will be no end. A throne, a house, and a kingdom. That's the covenant God made with David. You know what you call that covenant? You call that the Davidic covenant. And what is that? Look at this diagram here. This comes out of the Abrahamic covenant as well. You got the land promise manifesting as the Palestinian covenant. You got the seed promise. God said, Abram, you're going to be a mighty nation. You will produce offspring and ultimately it's going to lead to one in particular and that manifests as the Davidic covenant. And so in your notes, the Davidic covenant is an extension of God's promise of seed. To Abraham. We got one promise left. How does that manifest? Blessing. Does God lift that promise of blessing from Israel? Well, by Jeremiah 31, I want you to look there with me. Jeremiah 31, things are pretty dark in Israel. They've been bad before. Israel has disobeyed before, but the prophet Jeremiah says this is the worst it's ever been. These people are committing child sacrifice. They are offering their own children, their own babies, to the god Molech. It's never been this bad. Surely God is fed up with his people. Here's what God says in Jeremiah 31, 31. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. What was that covenant called when they came out of Egypt? Who was leading them when they came out of Egypt? It was Moses, right? And so we call that covenant the Mosaic covenant, or we call it the law. He said, this is not a covenant like the law. No, no, that, that, that was a conditional covenant. There was no promise of salvation in that covenant. That was an if-then covenant. I was giving you rules to follow, but I know no one will ever keep those rules. No one could ever keep the law. They're just going to reveal your sin. 
This is not that kind of a covenant. It's a new covenant. And in verse 40, uh, 33, he says, For this is the covenant I will make with the house of Israel after those days. Now watch these words. He says, I will. You know where we've seen those words before? In God's covenant with Abraham. I will, I will, I will. When God says, I will, he will. He does. Or he did. Amen? He says, I will. Put my law within them and I will write it on their hearts. When God started to govern mankind, he told man what to do. Did, that, did man do it? No, he says, well, you're, you're having trouble with what I say. Let me write it down for you. And so he, he gave them the Ten Commandments. He wrote the law on tablets of stone. How'd that work out? They disobeyed. They broke his heart. So he says, okay. I'm not going to write it down on paper. I'm not going to write it down on stone. I'm going to write it on your hearts. And Christian, that is exactly what he did for you. You are a beneficiary, even though you're a Gentile, you are a beneficiary of this new covenant. God has written his law on your heart. When you came to faith in Jesus Christ, he wrote that on your heart. And you are, you are a partaker in the new covenant. You know what the new covenant is? It's grace. It's salvation found in Jesus Christ who died on a cross for our sins and rose from the dead. He offers you the gift of grace. It's the new covenant. Believe and live. And he wrote it on your heart. And you know what? It didn't begin with us. This is not a covenant that is, that is uh, unique to the Gentile church because it was offered first to Israel. He says, and I will be their God and they shall be my people. I'm going to adopt them. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me. How are they going to know him? He's going to live inside them. From the greatest, the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. They will know and finally embrace their Messiah. When? When he comes back. When Jesus comes back, they will know him. And they will fall at his feet. And he will live in them as he lives in his church. And this is the promise of God. There will be a cleansing of them. For I will forgive their iniquity, he says, and I will remember their sin no more. That is an amazing thing. Look at this diagram. This third promise flows out of the Abrahamic covenant and manifests as that new covenant that we read about in Jeremiah 31, 31. It's the promise of blessing in your notes. The new covenant is an extension of God's promise of blessing to Abraham. So you got these three prominent covenants in your Bible. The Palestinian covenant, the Davidic covenant, and the new covenant. And they're not new. They were prophesied all the way back in Genesis chapter 12. Now you might wonder, that's a lot of content, isn't it? You're drinking from a fire hose today. And you might be sitting here thinking, what's this all matter to me? You know what, the, what matters? You know what ought to matter? Three things I'm going to give you. Number one, it matters because of Jesus. Jesus. Because of Genesis 12, you more narrowly know who this Messiah will be. It's going to be one man. He will be a Jew. He will be descended from Abraham. And he will be a blessing to all the families of the earth. Jesus didn't just pop up out of nowhere and everybody voted and said, I think that's the way, the truth, and the life. No, he was always prophesied from the beginning of the first book of your Bible. Secondly, it matters because of salvation. Salvation. Because of this text, we know doctrinally how we can be saved. What kind of covenant did God make with Abraham? Was it a conditional covenant? No, it was an unconditional covenant. It was, it was based on God. It's not based on our works. We don't earn anything. Abraham didn't earn anything. And ultimately, the new covenant that will come out of that promise will assure that we come by grace through faith, not of works. And then this matters third because of prophecy. Prophecy. Here's what Paul writes in Romans 11, Romans 11, 11. He said, so I asked, did they, talking about Israel, did they stumble in order that they might fall? In other words, is, is God done with the Jews? Is God finished with Israel? No, by no means, Paul says. Don't let anybody tell you that God's done with Israel. He's not. 
He loves Israel. Rather, through their trespass, salvation has come to the Gentiles. See, you are a beneficiary of their rejection of Christ. They turned away, and so God opened this up to you and I. We are now grafted into God's plan. But here's one of the reasons that we exist as the church. He says, so as to make Israel jealous. See, God wants them back. He wants them back. And he's using the, the reality of the church to entice, to, to draw his beloved Israel back to her Messiah. Verse 12, now, if their trespass means riches for the world, and, and if their failure means riches for the Gentiles, how much more will their full inclusion mean? For if the rejection means the reconciliation of the world, what will their acceptance mean but life from the dead? You want to know something? They rejected Christ. He opened up the gospel to you and I. That's great. You just wait till they embrace the Messiah. An even bigger door is going to open up. What's going to happen when they embrace Messiah? When will they do that? They will do that when Jesus returns to the earth. How many of you believe Jesus is coming back? He's coming back. What does that kick off when he does? That's called the kingdom age. The millennial reign of Christ. He is going to reign and rule in person on the earth. It will be a time like man has never known before. It will be a time of unlimited blessing. And that will be the result of Israel receiving her Christ. And all the promises of that covenant God made with Abraham will finally be fulfilled. If you believe Jesus is coming back to reign and rule you must necessarily believe that God will keep his promise to his people, Israel. Those things go hand in hand. Aren't you glad we have a God that keeps his word? If he didn't, there wouldn't be much hope for us. Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I ask your blessing upon us. Thank you for this time in your word. What a treasure trove your word is, God, that you've made it available to us. And may we be encouraged by it. May we be made more hungry for it as we read, as we study. And we, we go today carrying these truths with us. Use them to transform us and help us as Abram was to be set apart in a pagan land, to be an example of righteousness in a world that is dark, to represent you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen.